It's the TEH podcast, episode number 170. I'm Leo Notenboom from askleo.com. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig from macmost.com. How is life in Denver today? Okay, summer drawing to kind of its end, uh, but uh, still hot. <laughs> it is, okay, yeah. We're, uh, we're also continuing to see higher than average or at least you know, higher than Seattle <laughs> temperatures yeah. um, out here as well. Um, on one hand, as is typical, I'm a little tired of excessive heat, um, mm. but I know that as soon as it starts raining, I'll start complaining about that too. Sure, yeah. That's what so, weather's for, for us to have things to complain about. <laughs> <laughs> like we don't have enough other things to complain about. Yeah. So what people have been complaining to me about this yeah. week um, was the announcement by LastPass last week that their systems had been breached. Um, mm -hmm. And I thought it would make for an interesting discussion here just because um, whenever you hear about a password vault uh, yeah. service getting compromised, or even if there's a hint of getting compromised, uh, you know, a lot of people run around with their hair on fire thinking it's the end of the world. In this case, it is absolutely not, but you wouldn't know that unless you actually read beyond the headline. Um, if you just pay attention to headline, again, another one of our um, um, ongoing themes, it seems, with some of the things we talk about. Uh, if you just pay attention to the headline, then you're not getting the full story. And the full story is actually a little bit more interesting and less um, hair-raising, so to speak, mm -hmm. than... Um, and then the headlines will have lead you to usually believe. Usually is, yeah. Um, the issue is that apparently um, a developer, a software engineer at LastPass had his credentials stolen, had his account hacked. And hackers uh, of unknown origin, they didn't say where they came from, uh, were apparently able to, uh, using his account, steal some of the LastPass source code, which... Um, LastPass said um, had proprietary information, which I typically take to mean trade secrets of some sort. That, um, but that's about all they've said about what was taken. They went through great pains to point out that um, no, zero, nada user information was uh, involved in this, which is, of course, everybody's big uh, concern when that happens. Um, it's, it's like, oh my gosh, LastPass has been hacked and everybody immediately thinks that um, everybody's password vault is now like in the clear. There are so many ways that that's not true. Uh, but in this case, I just thought it was kind of interesting that it was a developer that got hacked of all things. Hmm. I am hoping, yeah. I am assuming that um, like any good, mature a software development organization. They have what I would refer to as development systems and production systems. And the twain rarely meet. So by that, I mean that um, I don't believe that random developer on a LastPass team even has access to the servers that contain uh, all of our encrypted vaults. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing that's protecting us, I'm sure. Um, and of course, the standard thing of password managers done properly, uh, they even if even if someone were able to 
hack into their servers and gain access to the vaults, which to be clear, did not happen. In fact, to the best of my knowledge, has never happened for LastPass. Mm -hmm. um, but even if they did, the hackers would get exactly nothing because all they have is encrypted data. And on top of that, LastPass doesn't even have the ability to independently decrypt that data. They don't store our password. They don't store um, you know, what's necessary to decrypt the data. Uh, they refer to it as zero knowledge, which right. is exactly what it should be. Mm -hmm. So even if the worst does happen, it's, I don't want to say it's not a big deal, but it's not the big deal that everybody, everybody immediately jumps to the conclusion it would be. Um, so, you know, a lot of, a lot of what I've been replying to people this week on is, you know, okay, yep, it's a thing. It happened. Um, but no, you don't need to do anything. Uh, I'm writing an article on it that I think is going to publish, um, Thursday. And okay. the, um, the other thing that I have come to acknowledge though, um, I continue to use LastPass. I'm certainly not doing anything different. I'm not changing. I'm not jumping ship, anything like that. I feel perfectly confident, perfectly safe continuing to use them. However, I know that many people might not. Um, some will, for whatever reason, probably, uh, you know, by because they only read the headline or they don't understand the details, which is totally understandable, so to speak, um, will just lose confidence in LastPass. Yeah. And you know what? That's okay. I get it. I really do. It's not necessary, but I get it. Um, and there are the good news, and this is an article I've got coming up in a couple of weeks, um, is that there are so many good alternatives. What matters most about your password vault is that you use one, right? Yeah. That's, that's like the, the single thing that almost all security experts and even non-experts agree on is that a password vault of some sort is one of the best things you can do to improve your own personal security. But in order to do that, you have to have faith in it. If you don't have faith in it, you're not going to use it or you're not going to use it enough or you're not going to use it correctly. So if for whatever reason, or at any time you lose faith in your password vault, there are lots of good alternatives out there. Um, and I've got absolutely no problem with uh, thinking or having people say, you know what, this is the last straw. Um, I'm going to move to something else like Bitwarden, which I know a friend of ours is using or 1Password that we talked about, I think last week that you're using. Um, uh -huh. There are others as well that are, that are equally good um, and I think are, uh, I, I, what I don't want to have happen is people take this event, which honestly doesn't really impact them, taking it too seriously and making bad decisions. Um, I had an interesting observation, though. When you think about it, what's the risk, right? What's the risk of, of this particular style of, um, of breach? Somebody snagged some of the source code. So they and presumably others can now see the source code. Isn't that also often referred to as open source? Yeah, isn't now I don't know what Bitwarden is. I think some there are some uh, password managers that are open source. Yes, KeePass is one of them. That's KeePass. one of the ones I looked at a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, um, but yes, there are definitely open source password managers. Um, 
So it's like, I, okay, they can see I the guess source code. <laughs> the danger, I think the danger is that open source software is designed to be open source. Yes. Whereas if it's not, and it's security-minded software, there may be things in there that they've designed that, you know, people won't, you know, part of our security is people don't know how this works, this part of it works or whatever. Right. Um, so, you know, maybe the best, maybe the best way to do it for a software developer is to design as if it were open source, but not make it open source. Right. Right. And that way you, you know, if it's, you know, if it's ever leaked like this, it's not a big deal. I find it, you know, another aspect to this is to pay attention to the initial thing that, you know, a developer uh, was hacked. Yes. Um, they didn't say like how, right? It wasn't like, Correct. It, was it? Yeah. So, I mean, you could, assume most hacks today are some form of phishing. Yep. And I think it's, you know, I always tell people one of the most dangerous things about phishing or any kind of scams, whether they're real life, physical, world scams or online scams, which are mostly phishing, um, you know, where somebody's tricking you out of something is thinking that, oh, because I know it exists or because I've read some about it, that I'm immune now. Right. Because that's not the case. The, you know, one of the things I've read a lot in trying to be better at security so I can teach people, I've read a lot about the history of scams and how, you know, scams before computers and then scams you know, that don't involve computers today and, and how they work and all of this. And the fascinating thing is, is that you really shouldn't ever think you're too smart to be scammed because even very smart people, people that have made like careers out of like knowing scams and teaching people about them so they don't get scammed can get scammed if, you know, you're targeted enough and if you're mm -hmm. off guard enough. But in fact, I think there's like the danger, if you draw a line, there's like certainly a dangerous thing at one side of the line where you don't know anything about scams. You, right. know, you trust everybody, you have no idea that scams exist, then it's very dangerous. And even if you know a little bit, but you don't know how they work and you haven't really educated yourself, that's dangerous too. Then you get to the point where it's like, okay, I know about some scams and I know I need to be worried about it. Then you're a lot safer. But then if you get to the point where you think, oh, and I'm so good at knowing scams, Yes. That I don't have a thing to worry about. That's like another danger point. Over, on overconfidence line. is just as bad overconfidence. as ignorance. Yes. Yeah, because <laughs> it, it is. Yeah, you have to always like don't uh, don't assume that you can't be scammed because you're too smart, uh, because I don't think that exists. I think human psychology is deep enough that I think anybody could be scammed. And the best way is just you got to be educated about it. You have to be on guard. And then on top of that, don't assume that you're immune. And it's that's funny. probably the ultimate way to the best chance you have of not being scammed. Those three things. I've been doing this obviously for you know years, decades, yeah. um, as have you. And there are times when I've come close, right? When yeah. when the the phishing mail uh, is so well crafted mm -hmm. that um, you know you're almost tempted. Fortunately, I've I. I'm an exceptionally skeptical guy to begin with, which works to my benefit. Uh, but uh, it's it's sometimes I don't want to say it's understandable, but it kind of sort of is that people might fall for some of these scams that um, that are so well crafted. It actually reminds me of something else I was working on just this morning. Um, I've been writing about smishing, right? SMS-based phishing. Yes. And what's <laughs> interesting about that 
is that it's not as simple as you get a message and you click a link. The way that they're doing it these days is uh, they send a text message that looks like it was intended for someone else. And you reply saying, hey, wrong number. Mm. And then they reply and try to establish or try to continue a conversation with you to establish a rapport. Yeah. And once that's been established, then at some point they say, hey, can I have a look at this? This is really cool. They send you a link and now you're screwed. <laughs> so they've they've basically built up a level of trust that isn't warranted because you have no idea who they are. Um, but it goes to that same thing where you're trusting things that you shouldn't necessarily trust. Yeah. But the bottom line I have for smishing is simply this, uh, much like um, telephone calls in general, um, if I get a text message from a number I don't recognize, Mm -hmm. I don't act on it. If anything, I'll, especially if it's one of these that, that looks like a, the beginning of a conversation, yes. um, I will just block it, mark, mark it as spam and block it. Um, and, and also, um, sometimes they try to pull at your heartstrings too. Oh yeah. Uh, making you think that, oh, this, this is important. They sent it to the wrong person. Right. If I just ignore it, I'm a bad person now because yep. I could help out somebody in a situation like this. You know, you get a text, I, I, not the particular one, but like an example would be, you know, you know, mom's in the hospital, uh, you know, give me a call, you know, or something like that. And you're right. like, oh, right. if I just ignore it, somebody may miss an opportunity and all this. And the thing is that it could just be, you know, this, it could right. be somebody trying to trick you. Yep. Um, into it and yeah and then i have to admit if i get something like that you know usually it's more pedestrian like you know that document here's like some documents for something you think oh boy somebody's really going to be uh in trouble because they're missing this right <laughs> you know and obviously i'm not going to respond but it Spammers, does they do like to play on your kindness um yeah you know, our, our default and this is true actually for answering the phone as well our default has been so long to always be polite, answer the phone, do this, sure. do that. And um, spammers and fishers are absolutely um, playing on that and essentially rendering that advice um, moot. You just don't do that anymore. It's it's okay to be rude. It really is. It's safe yeah. for sure. Yeah. It's frustrating, yeah. but you, know, you have to protect yourself. One of the things I was going to mention about that developer, um, mm. and that is, I hope he still has a job. And mm. I, I say that not because he shouldn't have allowed himself to get hacked. We don't know the circumstances. But more important than that, more important than that individual developer is I want the, um, the, the feeling to be it's safe to report security instances. Oh, good point. Um, you don't want to say, you know, I'm going to report this. I did something stupid um, or I let something happen or whatever, or I got fooled by a phishing attack. Um, if, if your gut reaction is to keep it to yourself because you might lose your job, that's a bad result. Oh, yeah. You got to feel safe um, letting people know so that they can take the appropriate action. The other thing I was going to mention, and this is in LastPass's support is that the first I heard of this was from LastPass. They announced this. They um, they discovered it. And then a week later, they published a blog post saying, hey, here's what happened. Here's what's affected. Here's what's not affected, that kind of stuff, which mm -hmm. I always really appreciate from uh, 
companies, especially when it's a high profile thing like this, that, you know, a lot of people are going to misinterpret and take the wrong way. Nonetheless, yeah. um, in, in my thinking, my way of thinking is again, they're not hiding it. I don't want them to hide it. I want them mm-hmm. to be as honest as they possibly can be uh, without further compromising security. And they did that. I like that, that openness, that, that, uh, you know, that honesty that they seem to, uh, well, that's definitely something you want as in a company that deals with security is that honesty, and it should make you want to continue to do business with them right. rather than push right. you away. Because exactly. um, certainly there have been cases we don't even know about where right. companies in that situation just never reveal that anything bad happened. Right. I mean, I've how many times have you know we had to replace credit cards mm-hmm. because some you know there's been a leak somewhere, right? Somehow they got you know a number. Yep. And um, I'm sure those are data leaks. And I'm sure they happen in companies that just never bother to tell anybody about it because they're right. scared of like, oh, this is going to be bad. Yep. But, you know, I just had um, to follow up on a something I talked about a few weeks ago, months ago, actually, is just before our trip to Europe. Uh, we had the unfortunate thing where my wife's credit card had been compromised mm-hmm. the day before we left. Mm-hmm. And that's the worst possible time because they're like, no problem. It's canceled. New one on the way. Well, great. We leave tomorrow. So I guess we're going for doing <laughs> Europe with one of us with no way to pay for thing. You know, um, interesting thing happened. It also happened to me. My one of my credit cards, actually one of the main ones I use right. when traveling got compromised, never been compromised before. I've had it for a while. It got compromised, but I didn't know. And neither did the credit card company. A what happened was I went on the entire trip and I used it fine. I got home and two weeks later, I got a notification. There's a three dollar charge from a retail store nowhere near me that I would never have gone to. Right, three dollar charge. You know, so I was like, oh, and it just did happen. I mean, it happened that minute. I got an alert. This looks suspicious. I called them. Yep. No, this was not me at all. They're like, great card canceled, new one on the way. Check to see if there are any others. I'm like, well, okay. I looked and there's like all these, what I would think would be suspicious charges uh, traveling through Europe. Right. But they all are me. I'm like, yep, this is me. This is the subway. This is the uh, you know hotel, mm-hmm. whatever. All the way back past that. I'm glad I looked a little past that. There were two charges for a similar tiny amount to a similar store before I left for my trip. Fascinating. I didn't get notified because there's a notification thing I have turned on, but it's for $10 or more. Yeah. So these were so small. I didn't see them. Had I seen them before I left on the trip, Mm -hmm. I would have had to cancel that card (laughs) and I would have been without, I would have had a a backup card, but I would have been without a primary card. And I thought, wow, I lucked out because I was compromised. I didn't notice. I continued to use the card. I had no issues. Nothing else bad happened until this third charge came on. But the interesting thing is, where did this come from? Because the reason I looked really carefully is I thought, oh, I traveled and I used it in all these places. Surely one of them had a a data breach, right? Right. Surely there's somebody at a restaurant or somebody at a hotel that's slipping credit card numbers somewhere. Nope. The initial charges were before I ever left. Wow. I don't use that card much at all, except while traveling. So there were literally like maybe three or four charges for the last six months to that card. And I think I could rule out most of those because they were things like uh, 
you know, online subscriptions to, uh, you know, streaming services, sure, you know, sure, big, yep. big companies. Yep. I'm like, so where did the data breach happen? Someone had a data breach and they never bothered to report it. And me and probably thousands of other people, you know, found out later what only when things were charged. Anyway. Interesting guy. I had that happen to me. I think I've mentioned here before too. Yeah. Um, I was on a trip somewhere. Oh, it's a trip to Las Vegas many years ago. Yeah. Um, and uh, a card, I know exactly where it got compromised. Um, I yeah. used it. Full I used time. it in an airport restaurant. And yeah. it was cl a classic case of, you know, the, the person takes the card to the back room mm, to run the yeah. charge and then brings it back to you. And my supposition is then it was cloned or something like that at that point. Um, that's one that um, uh, while I was away, that card um, got compromised. And just before um, I left, another card of mine had gotten compromised. So I actually was in Las Vegas with no way to pay for my room. The... Um, uh, the good news is that at that time, one of the ones that had been compromised was American Express, and they were uh, very happy to FedEx me a replacement card at my hotel, uh, well, which obviously yeah. got there before I, I guess left. Then maybe I could have, because for me, it was uh, an Amex card too. So maybe mm -hmm. actually, if I had noticed that, I might have been able to get uh, a new card. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, American Express is interesting in that way because they also have offices in the various countries that you've been to. Um, it's very possible that they may not have FedExed you a replacement card to a foreign location, but they might have FedExed it to their office in that country and then um, you know, basically done the in-person prove you are who you say you are kind of thing. You know, uh, I mentioned also when I was in Europe that everybody, you know, nobody ever took my card, right? Everybody always comes with the little machine to the table. Right. And then, you know, I could do, you know, with my phone or with a card, if you, mm -hmm. that's all you had, you pay right there. And that's how it's been that way in Europe for a long time. Right. It's slowly moving that way in the U.S. Right. Strange thing is I went to a restaurant I regularly go to where they, they actually were already pretty advanced, giving you a QR code on the receipt. I scan mm -hmm. it an app, not even the full app, but the app widget on an iPhone, it's called. So you don't have to download the app comes up and you pay on your phone. I can use Apple pay and I'm done. Right. They further upgraded. I mean, they were already way past everybody else. They further upgraded the last time brought one of those European style things over to the table. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, okay. Two weeks ago, we paid with the QR code. Now we actually pay using this. No, no paper needed. Um, strangely enough, I think the server was busy and he just dumped it there at the table and said, there you go. And I've had that in Europe too, where they leave it with you, but usually it's on a screen that's very specific. Here you go, do this and all that. He left it on a screen that had all sorts of menus. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and I saw him leave, like he's gone. Right. And I'm like, oh, you <laughs> Well, you left this with the wrong person and the right person at the same time. Right person exactly. is, I'm not going to do anything bad, <laughs> but wrong person is, I'm poking around, right? I want to see how these things work. So as my wife rolls her eyes, I'm like looking in the different menus and like, oh, <laughs> you know, we're table 57 and uh, you know, going into this. And oh yeah, they're pretty busy here. Look at all this other stuff. You know, you can go, I'm going in and playing around with the interface. And I'm like, all right, all right, go to payment interface. There we go. Add the tip, pay and done. And <laughs> But Actually, it it's, funny. it's it's the the wrong thing to do and the right person to do it to because you like yes. you said you're going to poke around and look and not do anything bad. Not do anything. I'm just curious how that works. But work. it's the other good thing is that you're someone who basically 
figured out how to pay on your own, which, um, yeah. you know, and, and quote unquote, average consumer probably wouldn't be able to do. And they'd have to wait for the server to come back and say, hey, you left it here in the wrong state. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, I guess. The, the, the credit card thing actually um, segues nicely into what I was also going to mention about these uh, breaches. One of the complaints I, I often get is that uh, a breach happens and you don't hear about it for like a week. Mm. And um, to me, that's totally legit. And I, I, it dawned on me that I, it was worth understanding or worth perhaps explaining why that might be the case. Uh, so, you know, let's say you're a company and you discover um, a breach. Mm -hmm. What's the first thing you want to do? Well, you want to understand it. That takes some time. The, the, a good parallel is kind of sort of what you just described. You're looking at your credit card uh, statement and you recognize or you find, you find a charge that you don't recognize, hmm. what do you do? Your first reaction is not to call the police. Your hmm. first reaction is to explore, understand, research yeah. it. Um, you know, there, there are certainly charges that I have found on my credit card statements that I say, boy, that sure doesn't sound familiar. And I do a little bit of research and realize that, oh yeah, it's this thing over here. That oh I yeah. Forgot All about. The time. yeah. Um, you know, I, when I bought it, they called it X, but because of the magic of credit card processing, it's Y that shows up on the statement. And when you put the two together, it all makes sense. That takes time too, right? Your first reaction is not to, to send up a flare. Your first reaction is to research the extent of the problem and then make sure that you have uh, you know, the appropriate remediation in place. So when a company like LastPass takes a week or so to, to actually disclose these things, I got to believe that's exactly what's going on. They're scrambling, trying to figure out, A, okay, what the heck happened? How did this happen? Okay, great. Now we understand how it happened. What did they get, right? What's the scope of the breach? And then finally, how do we stop this from happening again? And I think it's important that people understand that it's not until that third question gets answered that it's really safe to go public with the fact that you've been breached. Because otherwise, it's an open invitation for hackers to say, oh, you got breached and you don't know how? There's a way to get you. Yeah. There's a way to breach you. We'll find out how, right? right? All of a sudden, all the hackers in the world are going to take a look at LastPass's uh, uh, security and see if they can find a way in because they know that one exists. Yeah. Um, anyway, so the it needs to be a reasonable amount of time. Um, a week seems actually pretty darn quick um, in the scope of things. It does. But when somebody uh, reports a breach happened a month ago, I'm certainly not uncomfortable. When it starts to get around the six-month or 12-month mark, sure. then I really start to wonder, depending on the circumstances, exactly why it took that long. But I think it's worth understanding that um, you know you just don't report a breach the moment you find it. Uh, there's some, sure. some legwork that needs to be done for everybody's security. Yep, indeed. So, so something froze over, apparently. Oh yeah, well, not quite, but um, yeah. For the first for the first time in a long time, I actually installed Windows. Um, you know, for a long time, I've I've had Windows available to me. I mean, it used to be in the early days, my early days, you would I would have to have a Windows machine as well as a Mac, just for nothing else for web browsers, right? Because web browsers were so different. If you develop websites. You needed to see what it looked like on Windows, like in Internet Explorer, as well as on Mac. 
Um, and and then as a gamer, you know, a lot of games for uh, PCs that never came out for Mac. So for years I had PCs as well, you know, just not my everyday machines, but I had them. And then thanks to boot camp and things like virtualization with parallels and such, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I did not have a Windows machine, but I had Windows installed somewhere, you know, either as a virtual machine or, a, uh, you know, through boot camp. But uh, it's been years, like probably, I think my last virtual machine I'd let die when I got rid of my previous Mac Pro. Uh, and I never really bothered to install Windows or Parallels anywhere else. Uh, browsers are much better now being, you know, pretty much the same across yeah, platforms and all. So, um, but yeah, something, there was a game, a game that came out. There's a series I was a huge fan of called Age of Empires. Um, and I played all the different versions of it back in the day. And that type of game called real-time strategy games, which I really enjoy, had a huge heyday. And there were a lot of other games out too. A lot of them for PC, some for Mac, but a lot for PC. And I played through all of them. And then the genre just pretty much died. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it got replaced by the little like, you know, uh, strategy games you play on um, mobile devices where, you know, you have to do something and it actually takes six hours or six days and you wait and you come back and you do a, another battle. And then there's the, uh, not, they call it real-time strategy, but it's a little different. It's more like war games. And then there's ones that are turn-based strategy where you actually take turns. It's not, uh, you know, time stops and pauses after every move. I don't like any of those. <laughs> but real-time strategy really just for me is like, oh, I love it. And there had been nothing for years. Like, no, people just stopped making them. Um, I actually, there's, there, well, that's not true because there's one game. It's an open... Is it open source? Yeah, I guess it is open source uh, project called Zero AD that I love. That's like a great game. It's free, but I pay because it is good. And mm -hmm. I've certainly, they've certainly earned it, the people working on it. And um, it's Mac and Windows. It's like, I think Unix too, you know, or Linux at least. So it's, uh, it's a great game and it's in constant development. Like every year there's a new version, new update to it, all that. Um, but Age of Empires came out with a new version, Age of Empires 4. So after all those years of no games being produced and all of the different series like Rise of Nations and Empire Earth and all sorts of other variations basically dying, Age of Empires comes back around with Age of Empires 4 and it's only for PC. <laughs> so that was like 10 months ago that came out. And I was like, oh, this is killing me. I mean, I even... I even went several times to like Dell clearance site and was like, how much would it cost? You just get a, a little tower in here, you know, that I can right. hook up to an old screen or whatever, just so I can play this game. Cause I know I enjoy these games. And then I'd be like, ah, I'll put it off till later. And of course I'm now on, you know, the M M1 Mac on my Mac studio, my laptops right. are M right. M2 back now. So you can't do virtualization of, you know, Intel operating systems on them. So it's not going to work on those. But I eventually gave in and I thought, you know, since I have an M2 MacBook Air now, my old machine is now the M1 MacBook Pro or my old laptops, the M1 MacBook Pro, which means I've got this 2016 MacBook Pro that's an Intel one that's now the old, old one. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to, I mean, it's, it's sitting there. I see it's sitting there in the corner, but let's be realistic. It's not going to move in the next year, two years, three years. It's not, I'm not going to use it. So why not? Why not install Windows on it? And then the 
kicker was they had a free weekend where you could use Steam and download and play Age of Empires 4 for free. I thought, oh, wow, if I could just get Windows installed on that machine, then I could try the game out. So I did it. And I was amazed at how quick it was to go from like, not just, okay, the intention of like, mm, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but let me, let me open the machine up and see what I can do to actually having Windows running. It was incredible. It was, uh, you know, unfortunately, it's a really kind of low end, eight, eight uh, gig memory, 256 gig storage machine. Mm -hmm. um, not ideal for trying to dual boot to and not ideal for running a game like that because right. you know that memory and it's also integrated graphics right intel integrated graphics mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. that means some of that memory is going to be taken up by graphics um, but i went in and i so there was nothing really on the machine so i just said great boot camp assistant on, on the mac uh, yeah give most of it to windows but keep a mac partition there Mm -hmm. and go and then it's like oh uh point to the windows iso I was like, all right let me go over here i made a mistake at first and i downloaded a windows 11 iso to install only to find out that you know that same thing we've talked about before you've talked about about the requirements for windows 11 right for the security chip right yeah so you can't install that with boot camp at least not without some workarounds right um, but when i eventually figured that out and I just pointed it to like oh let me download the Windows 10 ISO the official mm -hmm. one from Microsoft right just downloaded it for five gigs or whatever it was boom pointed it to it install and then I was shocked when like 20 minutes later I'm looking and there's like Windows on the machine I'm like wow <laughs> that was incredibly fast and mm -hmm. then I didn't know that you know you can install Windows for free now I mean Mac's been like that for a long time, but I assume you still have to pay hundred bucks or whatever to install Windows. And you still do, but you can get Windows working without paying right. anything. Yes, you can download it and install it for free. Eventually it will start nagging you to activate. It yeah, activate, but I, you'd only have to activate if you want to customize. If you exactly. just want to poke around a Windows, you're fine. For and, what, and for what you wanted to do, if yes. all you're trying to do is play a single game, you don't need It's to great, play. I do see a little, <laughs> print on the screen like overlaying the screen asking right. me to activate windows even while playing but my brain's perfectly fine with filtering that out i actually do have a windows insider account and i signed into that thinking that that would activate for me but mm, it did i don't think so yeah. i'm not yeah i'm not really i think sure. it like, only activates insider builds yeah so i think i would have to switch to an insider build which is something i could do but anyway i got to use it on my uh Mac, you could know, you could know a guy but... yeah yeah <laughs> my <laughs> macbook pro it seems to run pretty well the game runs pretty well it was not wanting to give me some of the advanced you know high quality graphics and stuff mm -hmm. because of memory because that intel chip in the machine is using the regular ram that's the way it was built and the game is like super gpu ram hungry right so it was like okay uh, you're gonna have four gigs of ram for memory and four gigs for the graphics card and that's going to put you on like the low settings for for everything right um right. and there's nothing i can do about that uh you know without buying a new machine but it does work and then i poked around in windows a little bit and that was kind of fun it's been a long time since i did that unfortunately it's windows 10 so it's not really any different than the last time i poked around in windows i was hoping i could poke around in windows 11. um not but that uh, either. Yeah. but neat and the interesting thing was the the mistake i made by trying windows 11 
mm -hmm. first actually paid off. It didn't take very long for it to install and then say, oh, you yeah, no, you can't activate because this machine doesn't support it and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, this, so then I went to boot camp and uh, you know, the Mac side or the Mac part of it. I went to boot camp and I said, okay, undo that. And it was like, okay, removing Windows partition, Windows partition removed. And I was back to where I was. I was like, oh, it's that easy to undo because yep. I don't think many years ago it was. Um, so, so yeah, so if I am, you know, done playing Age of Empires 4 or I decide I love it so much, I'm going to buy a PC dedicated to it or something, right, right. Um, I could get that Mac back to exactly how it was really in minutes. Bootcamp is pretty interesting. I, 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 I like what they did with it and how they implemented mm -hmm. it. I have a, um, a MacBook Air, my wife's old MacBook Air um, now with a, a battery that basically doesn't hold a charge. Yeah. Um, so I've got it dedicated to um, my exercise room of all things. I'll have it um, running videos and so forth. But it too is running Windows 10 via bootcamp. Um, so it is effectively a Windows 10 machine until I say otherwise. And <laughs> yeah. that is actually not an, you know, not a bad configuration. Let's face it, the machines are nice machines. Um, you know, they they meet all the all the requirements. In my case, I've got it, um, I've got an external monitor hooked up to it. Um, mm -hmm. so that I can watch things while I'm on my elliptical and so forth. So yeah, they, they did a nice job with it. And I noticed when I set that up, uh, that bootcamp was a really, a really a nice solution. I'm it's part of me is kind of sad that the, um, M1, M2 processors don't have a way of, um, emulating yeah. x86, but I understand the decision too, right? It's not, not their target market really. Yeah. And I mean, it's still technically possible that it could come down you know, I think Apple's hinted enough that it really, if it was going to happen, it would need to be a closer partnership between Apple and Microsoft on the project. It's it, not it, kind of like bootcamp where they could just say, hey, it works. It they depends, would have to work yeah. with them. Because they would I, have to build a, like, they would have to get, if they were going to do it with the in, emulating Intel, then they would have to use the code Apple already has part of in Rosetta, you know, and they would have to go and really beef that up to handle Windows. Yes, and then get Microsoft probably to work with them, and both sides kind of support a way to emulate Intel using those processors, and it, and it's possible that you could have a simple uh, solution. I don't know if either party is interested though. That's that's the bigger issue, and honestly, I think that um, that's really only I'll call that a thirty three percent solution, yeah. because I think what people want. Um, uh, more uh, an additional set of people. I have no idea how large the audience is for any of this, to be honest. But um, you know, people want to install Linux on it. They want they basically want not a Windows emulation. Yeah. They want a PC emulation, and that means um, Apple would not explicitly work with Microsoft or vice versa until you know they would just do whatever it takes to make an emulator that truly emulates a PC. The, and it's all possible. It's absolutely possible. The issue is one of speed. Um, emulating yeah. emulating at the instruction level uh, really depends a lot on uh, the specific, just exactly how you know the, the instructions set on the M1 and M2 processors and how closely they do or don't map. Um, you know, it, it may very well be possible that there exists an emulator today or that there will exist an emulator soon that runs current windows at speeds of PCs from 10 years ago, which is unfortunately not what people want either, <laughs> right? I think it's better than that. I think, I mean, I think Rosetta, because 
you know, Rosetta 2 on the, the M1, M2 machines is emulating the Intel processor for apps. And some of those apps were things like Photoshop and stuff. And, and some of them were games. So they're actually running x86 versions of the software. Yeah, exactly. That's what Rosetta 2 did, right? I mean, it's still I was does. unaware of that. Okay. Okay. It's just that now, of course, more and more apps have updated to be native. Sure. sure. Because it, you know, Apple, Apple did a good job of basically setting up their developer tools for years so that when these new processors came out, you you basically just have to recompile. I mean, it's right. a little harder than that sometimes, you know, if you're using tricks and things like that then you have to deal with certain certain things. But for most parts of the software, you just were compiling for Intel. And then now you go in and you're all going to compile for you know, M, the M processors. Uh, it wasn't a huge deal. But for the time before that, there were true Intel code. The exact same, you could take the app from before these processors existed, copy it over to the, to the new machine, and then Rosetta 2 would run it. Mm -hmm. and would run it at great speeds, not 10 years ago speeds, maybe mm -hmm. two year ago speeds. Mm -hmm. And technically there is no reason why they couldn't take that engine and use it with Windows. Right. It's weird because it would be an operating system booting into its own thing rather than an app running inside of an operating system. But well, and it to, does to show, be fair, what it does people, show it's possible. Yeah, sure. Um, and ultimately when you think about it, all they really need to emulate mm -hmm. if they can pull it off is essentially the firmware in the machine, the BIOS with the UEFI, because everything yeah. else comes with Windows. And I don't think anybody's looking for a Windows app to run in Mac OS. I think what we really, really want, yeah. I know what I would want, is a virtual machine. I want Windows yeah. to run in Mac OS. And then within Windows, I can do all my Windows things. I think that's that would be a good way to go. And it's just, it may be more, you know, I don't know. I think it's possible. It just might not be something that anybody right. who can do it is willing to do. Yeah. So, and, and it's less, I think it's also less needed now is another thing. I think when Bootcamp was introduced, I think there was heavy demand for it. And like today, I just don't, I mean, you can get, you know, computers are cheaper relative to the economy. Mm -hmm. And also the reasons why you'd want to do things on, you know, have Mac and Windows are a little different. Like even my experience with, oh, I have this one game I want to run. Eh, but if I had a PC, I'd probably play more than just that one game. Hey, look, I can get last year's gaming computers from Dell right. as refurbished machines for $300. Right. You know, so they're Windows 10, they're last decent for last year, maybe two years ago, not quite up to date, but here they are refurbished machine, 300 bucks. So, you know, compare that with, oh, if I got, you know, something like Parallels, 50 bucks, something like, you know, get, got Windows, 100 bucks for the license. I'm already halfway there. Right, right. Uh, yep. And if I was a if I was serious about development, or if I had a business reason I needed to run this architecture app or this business app, and it was only Windows, and there was a like actual, this is how I make money, or this is what I get paid for. Why wouldn't I spend three hundred, five hundred, even thousand dollars on another machine to do that? Right, right. It, it's not that. I think that the other thing that's changed is the overall landscape of where we do our work. When you think about it, 
Um, there's very little I do uh, on a day-to-day -day basis that is PC specific. In fact, it's one of the reasons that um, um, I was able to use my Mac Pro for so many years to do all the stuff that I'm doing today. Uh, so I think that that has um, happened. That That's one of the things that's changed in the landscape. So much of what we're doing is now either online or not device specific that it doesn't really matter what platform you're doing. And a number of apps, a number of apps that we may care about um, are now on both platforms anyway, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. The, I mean, or they're web-based. The, yep. Yeah. Um, or they're mo or they're mobile, so they're neither platform. Exactly. They're on exactly. our phones, not on our computers. Yeah. You know, for example, like you and I, I mean, we spend most of our time um, writing or videoing, and there's plenty of tools on both platforms for each. And in the case of yep. writing, I do all my writing in WordPress, which is even on my PC, right? It's it's yeah. It's a it's the website that I spend all my day my day in. So, yep. Cool. All righty. Well, I, uh, you know, I didn't, uh, going into our ancient cool, uh -huh. um, thing, I don't think I've mentioned for all mankind season three. You've I mentioned for all mankind, but I don't season think two, right. I think I talked about it. So I'll throw in my, mine for this week is season three mm. where they go to Mars. Um, it's great. It's, uh, you know, again, it's really good sci-fi stuff. Apple TV plus 10 episodes or nine episodes or whatever it was. Um, like season two, it, you'll remember that the whole series is basically what if the Soviet Union landed on the moon first right. and all the history changed and uh, basically the space race continued and the Cold War continued mm -hmm. well past what it did in our reality in this this uh, alternate history kind of thing. And in season three, they're basically in the 90s and there's a race for Mars. Um and I think it's really well done, really interesting uh, stuff. Uh, season two, I felt, was a big buildup to a fantastic final episode. And they seem to follow that model with season three. It was a buildup to a fantastic final episode of the series. Um, so cool. And I believe it's been renewed for season four. So we'll get to see what happens. I was just looking at IMDb. And in fact, this is the way we determine if there's going to be a next season is yeah. if IMDb has a placeholder for it. Yeah. And they do. Uh, so yeah, that looks interesting. Um, it's actually good, good sci-fi. I mean, I like, I appreciate TV where they really do try to get the sci-fi right within reason, you know, they, sure. it's okay. It, like, uh, for instance, and this doesn't give away anything. They have cold fusion. You know, they developed cold fusion, which okay. to be fair in the nineties, there was a lot of talk, like it was almost here. Right. 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 And then all of a sudden fizzled out. Well, they it turns out they figured some way to do it. And science fiction is fine with that. Sure. You can go, you can go and say, hey, we've got this theoretical thing in this universe, and we don't need to tell you how it works because we don't know. If we knew that we wouldn't be writing science fiction, we'd be doing it and yeah, <laughs> all of that. We just have to basically say, here's a plausible, you know, plausible that helium three found on the moon led to cold fusion and there's no energy crisis and they can have uh, spaceships that do things that you wouldn't normally be able to do because you have cold fusion. So that's like kind of cool. And then everything else was very realistic in terms of how they handled stuff. So one of the things I've noticed with a number of shows and it mm. started, I think on the streaming networks, yeah. um, but it's carrying over to uh, episodical TV is that there are, 
I'm going to oversimplify. There are two classes of shows. One is uh, for episodical TV. One is where every episode stands on its own. Yeah. You don't have to see last week's episode to get this week's episode. What I'm appreciating for shows that are good, in other words, if I really think the show is good for various other reasons, the longer story arcs that go across multiple episodes, we just finished one um, last night that unfortunately isn't going to be reviewed. It was a, a, a bank heisty type thing. Mm. And um, it uh, it was absolutely designed as a an episodical that would show up on your network TV every weekday at a certain time. Um, but it was also a 10 episode story. And I'm seeing that a lot more in places where we used to have standalone episodes only. Yep. Uh, and like I said, when it's good, when it's a good show, that's okay. I'm actually, I, I actually appreciate that. Uh, certainly when it's a good show, it hooks you, right? <laughs> you now yeah. must see every episode. But um, if I feel hooked, that means that I'm interested. Mm -hmm. um, speaking of uh, the my Ain't It Cool this week, we are two episodes into House of the Dragon. Ah. Uh, the um, uh, you know the sequel to uh, to who's it? <laughs> uh, Game of Thrones. Game right? of Thrones. Thank yes. you. I hate it when I draw a blank like that, especially on something that you know culturally significant. <laughs> anyway, um, been watching it. It's interesting. I told my wife that uh, clearly one of the things that towards the end of Game of Thrones people were excessively disappointed by was the lack of dragons. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I said, if they're going to do this at all, um, there have to be more dragons. And indeed, there have been dragons so far in every episode. That was probably the pitch to the network. More dragons. Two Just words, more dragons. More dragons. <laughs> That's Sold. Why $50 million budget. That's why they that's why they chose this particular storyline because it's the family that had all the dragons. Yeah. Um, anyway, it's interesting. It's a completely different set of characters. Um, there are some uh, you know references to some of the names and families and so forth that you might recognize from Game of Thrones, but um so far it's too soon to tell if the storyline is going to make sense long term. But uh, so far, it's visually stunning. They're, you know, they're using the budget they've been given, which has been, which is huge. Um, lots of CGI, but it all looks really good. Anyway, I'm just enjoying it, having fun with it, and we'll see where it leads. Cool. So, yeah, self-promotion. Since we don't have ads, the closest thing or what we get to talk about our own stuff. Um, this week, I'm going to point you all at the number one reason your computer is slow. Uh, spoiler alert, it's you, but um, it's, <laughs> it's so common um, that I think a lot of people don't realize that this is happening as they're using their computer over time. And it's something that they just need to be aware of. It's nothing huge. It's nothing horrible. Um, but it is something to be aware of. Number one reason your computer is slow, askleo.com slash one, two, five, five, three, zero. Interesting. I'll have to check that out. Um, for mine, I have an episode called Think You Have Duplicate Files or Photos? Maybe not. So I'm often asked by people, hey, I have duplicate files on my Mac or I have duplicate photos in my photos library on my Mac. How do I get rid of them? And the first thing I ask is, whoa, are you sure you have duplicates? Mm -hmm. Because so often it's not the case. For instance, for files, 
there is a folder that's kind of like the default thing you see on your Mac mm -hmm. that shows you recents. So it'll show you recent files. And for a lot of people, they don't even need to worry about organizing. Just whatever things they were doing right now are probably the top of recents and they go into it. But occasionally somebody will look and uh, see, hey, I've got that same file that shows up in recents shows up over here in this folder. Mm -hmm. I've got two of them. Let me delete that one. Whoops. So I only have one. Now, of course, there's only one file. The recents are showing them a list of recent files. And the other places where the file is actually stored, deleting from either location deletes the one file. And suddenly they're like, oh, no, I've lost my files. <laughs> um, sometimes people will do even worse. And in recents, they'll say, well, I don't want to see those files in recents. I don't want to delete them. You know, they're thinking, I just don't want them to be in recents. I'll remove them from recents. Yes. In which case, they end up deleting them. Same thing with photos is occasionally, uh, not occasionally, pretty often actually, people will look at their library, which lists all of their photos. And then they'll look at an album that they created and see what they think is a duplicate of a photo that's in their library. Right. And it's not. The album is like a playlist. It's showing you a group of photos you put together. If you delete the photo in either place, you're deleting the only copy of it. It happens so often now that I finally just made a video about these two things mm -hmm. so when somebody asked me about that i could just point them to the video it's funny because the uh what you're describing is simply that the system is providing several different views on the same set yes. of data exactly um there's another one and i don't know if this applies to macs or not uh in the case of windows there are backup copies of the system files mm. so that if malware comes along and corrupts your version of x um, Windows actually has a mechanism built in to recognize that that happened and then restore it to the proper copy from a backup image. Yeah. Um, but of course, what do you have on your machine? Two copies of the same file. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, you do. You literally have two copies of the file, but you know what? You want two copies of the same file for yeah. that very reason. Um, so yeah, my actual blanket um, uh, recommendation for folks whenever they come to me about duplicate files is don't. <laughs> Just, just yeah. don't. There's too many ways it can go wrong. Um, but yeah, uh, I can. I'm, I'm hoping the folks that um, have accidentally deleted the one copy of whatever it is they thought there were two copies of, um, are then also using that as an opportunity to start backing up. Right. Exactly. And yeah, but uh, so often the the di the Venn diagram of people that don't back up and people that also. Yes. willy-nilly delete files is <laughs> is large <laughs> yes oh sigh yeah. oh well just means that you and i will never be out of a job <laughs> yeah true i think that pretty much wraps us up for another week yep. the show notes are out at tehpodcast.com slash teh170 that's where you can leave us a comment or an additional question or whatever as always, thank you for being here, and we will see you here again real soon. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.